We're starting a new book of the Bible today. It's the book of 1 John. So we have 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation. So it's towards the end of the Bible. A smaller book, a smaller epistle. All right, there towards the end, the book of 1 John. Whenever I start to study a new book, I do get excited. I'm anticipating what's in the book. And because of that, I realize that I don't do a great job at laying the foundation. I just want to get right into the verses. And people say, why don't you do an introduction? Because I just can't wait. I want to read the verses. I want to see what they say. And so today I'm going to do a little bit of background, not a whole lot, about John and also about 1 John, the book itself. This is the Apostle John. He was one of the 12 that Jesus called, one of the 12 apostles. And he was even one of the inner circle, so to speak. Jesus called three men to be really close to him, Peter, James, and John, and that is this John. They, he was a son of Zebedee along with his, his brother, um, James, and they were fishermen. Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder because when Jesus was here on this earth during his earthly ministry, there was a time when they were so angry with some people that they wanted to call fire down from heaven and kill those people. So that tells you what John was like when he was young, when he was in his teenage years. John penned about 20% of the New Testament. And I'm talking about if you do a word count for the New Testament of the Bible, not by book, but just how many words are in it, the Holy Spirit used him to write about 20% of the New Testament, and that would include the Gospel of John. And we will refer to that Gospel quite a bit. It's the one that's just called John. And now we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and there are these letters, these epistles that he wrote. And then he also wrote the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of prophecy at the end of the Bible. Two other writers who wrote more words, inspired again by the Holy Spirit, would be Luke and Paul. I just learned this this week. Who wrote the most? It was Luke, if you count the words. And I know if you count by book, it's definitely Paul, but Paul wrote a lot of smaller books. But if you go by word count in the New Testament, about 27% of the New Testament because Luke has the whole book of Luke, and then he's got the whole book of Acts, very long books, lots of words, and then you have Paul that comes in just under him in, in the word count. So John, Paul, and Luke, all very prolific writers used by the Holy Spirit. This book, the book of 1 John, is probably the last book in the Bible written. It may have even been as late as 100 AD in the year of our Lord, Anio Domini, even later than Revelation. John refers to himself with a special name. Do you have like a special name for the people that you love near and around you? Well, he had a special name for himself. So I don't know if you're that odd that you have a special name for yourself. And you'll read in the Gospel of John that he called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Usually he doesn't refer to himself as John. He says, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. And people misunderstand that sometimes, and they're even bothered by it. And they say, how dare he say that? Well, he's not saying that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. And he's not saying that Jesus doesn't love the world, for did he not write in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So when John writes and said, says the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's more about his identity. It's more about how he sees himself. Because even more 
than your gift or your calling or your usefulness. Your identity is in the truth that Jesus loves you. And that's the way John saw himself. I think that's accurate. I know that's accurate. Jesus loved him. And he was constantly amazed at Jesus' love for him. Jesus, I bet you I'm Jesus' favorite. No, I just know that he loves me. I'm seeing this love flow out of him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. In this book of 1 John, he often speaks in terms of children, and he'll say like little children. Well, remember at this point, he's quite advanced in age. He's probably in his 90s, because even though he was the youngest apostle during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he lived the longest. And at this point, he's calling almost everybody he writes to little children. So he says that over and over again, and it's a very tender book. It's like from a father to a child, even from a grandfather to their children. So it'll be interesting to hear me try to teach a tender book. It's, it, there's this endearing, why are you laughing? <laughs> if I get to be a grandpa someday, I, I might be tender by then, right? You're, you're hoping. He uses the word father at least 13 times. Speaking of this like family relationship within the body of Christ, with the family of God, where Paul often writes, and he says, to the saints or to the church. It's not that John never does that. I know he does it in the book of Revelation quite a bit, to the church of Laodicea, to the church of Ephesus. But really, what he's saying is, and he says this, you're my loved ones. You're my beloved. I care for you. I love you deeply. Little children. The historical tradition about John, and there's a lot from the, from the first century and the second century. It's not included in the scriptures, but it does give us some insight that matches up with this book of 1 John, says that when John was in his 90s, since he was the last living apostle, he was carried from city to city, mostly in the region of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And when he would come to town, it was a big deal. The, the one who walked with Jesus is, is here. What does he have to say? And they would bring him into the church, and, and it would be packed. And he would start a sermon. And he would say, little children, love one another. And that was it. That's all he would say. This is important. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see Jesus' love and how we're just over and over again admonished that this should be our way of life. Now, John is going to say that he heard, saw, and even touched Jesus. So when he writes this, he is refuting a way of thinking called Gnosticism. He never says the Gnostics by name, but this philosophical and this spiritual system, as John lays out the truth, he is refuting the lies that were encircling the society in that day. Now, the Gnostics taught that everything physical was evil. So your body, your physical body, was always evil. There could there couldn't be any good in that body. And they taught that good could only be found in the spiritual. So Gnosticism said that Jesus wasn't a real person, that he was a spirit. At times people saw him, that he was like a ghost, but he didn't really take on flesh and bone. They denied the incarnate Christ, the incarnation of Christ. They said, oh, Jesus was wonderful. He was great. He was good. But he couldn't have really been a real person 
he had to have just been a spirit because our bodies are corrupt. Only bad comes from them. They're, they're evil. So you can see how he needed to clear up some of the things that he puts in this epistle. This way of thinking, this Gnosticism, was definitely spreading throughout the empire in the first century and the second century. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge, to find out, to know. So they elevated themselves in the sense of saying, we're the ones who really know. And there are a lot of variations of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. I'm not super into it. People say, have you read the whole, um, you know, all, all the works of Gnosticism? I haven't. I, I look at the main things. I'm like, man, this is, it's, it's some weird stuff. Um, they also denied that Jesus was God in the flesh. Serinthus was a leading Gnostic. He taught that Jesus was the son of Joseph, not the son of God. And he said that Jesus had a divine spirit come on him when he got baptized. And that spirit, that divine spirit supposedly stayed with him all the way until he was on the cross, and then it left him. So Serinthus, a Gnostic, said Jesus was like temporarily God. So the Gnostics denied both the incarnation and the deity of Christ. Now, even though it's, it's not extremely defined, it's not very cohesive, this false religion is coming back. Groups get together and they read the ancient Nag Hammadi texts. People keep asking me, have you read all of the Nag Hammadi texts? I, I haven't. I don't think I'm going to be getting to those anytime soon. It's just not worth my read. But what happens with Gnosticism, and the reason it's making a comeback is, you see, if our bodies are always evil and the only way we can find good is in the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm, then that gives us a license to sin in our bodies. See, Gnosticism says, since my body is evil, I can't help it. I'm going to do all kinds of corrupt things, and that's okay. I can be addicted to all kinds of substances. I can commit all kinds of sexual sin. And it's just my body. It doesn't really matter. And as I commit all these spiritual sins, or as I commit all these physical sins, I can still have a good spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? I can still have a spiritual strength in me and a spiritual goodness. So there's a division that does not exist in the word of God because God has told you and me that our physical frames can be used for holiness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so John is refuting some of the teachings of the Gnostics. We'll come back to that every so often, and hopefully you'll understand why he wrote what he did. Before we get into the actual verses, I'm going to do three exclamatory points this morning. Usually I'll ask questions or I'll give you some applications. But these are statements that deserve an exclamation point. And they are life-changing truths. Can you do just three? You're like, I can do three. Usually he has six or seven or something ridiculous like that, and that's too much for me. But can you do three? Chapter one, verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. What an incredible statement about Jesus. What an incredible experience, so full of truth. This is what John lived through. This is what John experienced about Jesus. It's so expansive. It's so descriptive. 
Jesus is the word of life. As John told us in his gospel, the word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. Jesus is the message of God in human form. So when we see the word of life here, it is talking about Jesus. The almighty God took on flesh and became one of us. He is the word of life. The word as fully God and fully human. Now John will continue to teach about Jesus and how to know Jesus throughout the book. And he's going to make this really, really clear. To be right about Jesus is to be right about God and is to be right about fellowship and is to be right about eternity. But for one to be wrong about Jesus is to be wrong about God and is to be wrong about fellowship and is to be wrong about eternity. He will speak very clearly. If you want to turn ahead a little bit to the second chapter, verse 2, 1 John 2, 2. He is a liar who denies that Jesus is the Christ. It's pretty clear. I told you it was tender, but it's also very truthful. He's a liar who denies that Jesus is the Christ. You can go to the end of the book, 1 John 5, 20. We are in him, that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So he says, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is God. And through Jesus, we have eternal life. Be right about Jesus. Be right about who he is so that your fellowship and your eternity can be right. So here's the first exclamatory point. We have heard, seen, and touched Jesus. So you have to wake up at least three times. That was the first time. We have heard, seen, and touched Jesus. Look at what it says about the Lord. He was from the beginning. Isn't that right there? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there. Not a created being, but the creator. Let us make man in our image, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, creating us in the image of God, Jesus, there. Not created, but the creator. In the beginning was the word, right? And the word was with God, and the word was God. That's Jesus, from the beginning, these truths. Those of you who are studying Colossians, the supremacy of Christ as the creator God. What a wonderful chapter for that, Colossians chapter one. So he says, Jesus was from the beginning. He clears that up. But now look what he says. It also says, we have heard. John and the other apostles heard Jesus speak. They heard him teach. They heard his questions. They heard his comments. They, they heard his voice He's saying, I was there. These ears heard Jesus. They heard him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying. They heard him speak, John heard him speak from the cross. He heard the voice of Jesus. He was in that room when he spoke to Jairus' daughter and he brought her back to life again. We heard, he says we because he's talking about himself and the other apostles. We heard Jesus. And there were many others, multitudes, crowds, thousands of people that heard the teaching of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. It says, we looked upon. We saw Jesus. First of all, the hearing reminds me of my dad a bit. I remember him telling me, and he told some of you, that when he was first saved, he found out that some Bibles 
were a red letter edition. And the words of Jesus are in red. And he said, when I first came to Christ, when I first believed in him, all I wanted to do was go to the red. I was like, if it's from Jesus, that's what I want to hear. That's what I want to see. Now, the whole of the scriptures are inspired, but the attitude is, I want to hear Jesus's voice. John says, I heard him along with many others. I heard him pray. I heard him preach. I heard him share the life, the hope, the grace. And then he says, looked upon. We've seen him, our own eyes, beholding the word of life. I was looking at him, the other apostles and I, and many beheld Jesus. We spent days and days with the Lord on the road. He was our companion. We had conversations with him, hearing and seeing Jesus. We saw his expressions. What if you could get the audio teaching of Jesus? I remember when I found out that A.W. Tozer has some audio teachings. I was all over it, and he's just a man. He was just a preacher. But when I found out that I could actually listen to him, I had read his books, and I could picture him in my mind preaching the word. And then somebody told me, do you know that they have some audio of of Tozer preaching? I was hunting down, trying to find it, listening to it, poor quality. Listen to him preach. Listen to him teach. Listen to his voice sharing. What if you could not only hear Jesus, but you had the video too? That you, you, when you were looking on YouTube for sermons and you're thinking, oh, which pastor is it? It said, Jesus, the Christ. That's who's teaching this. And it's just said something like the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse or the, the parable of the sower. You, I hope, would be all over it. Like, you mean, I get to see and hear Jesus? And this wasn't in a video this is in person. No wonder Paul said that I was one born out of due time because he wasn't there to, to see the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's way worse than missing the bus. That's way worse than not getting a ticket to the concert, right? We saw him and we heard him with our own eyes. And this was time after time, year after year of being with Jesus. You're there in the upper room. You're there listening to him just impart these truths and every bit of it displaying his love for you. That is what John experienced. That's what he's saying. That is who John experienced. Not only have we seen and heard, but what's next? It was a part of the exclamation. We, we've heard, we've seen, and we've touched. Our hands have handled Jesus in the flesh, a physical body, a physical frame, just like mine, just like yours. The gospel of John records him leaning up against Jesus's chest. He listened to Jesus's heartbeat. Just think about that for a second. And I know that our culture is rather standoffish, and if you're a part of other cultures, sometimes they're a lot more affectionate towards each, each other. And Jewish culture in those days was very affectionate. I have some good friends, and they're, they're Romanians. And when I go over to their house, he like sits right next to me. Like he's just like, and we're just hanging out. He's like, our legs are touching like the whole way down. And I'm like, okay, I guess this is the way it is, right? Right? They don't just say, hi, welcome to our house. It's like they're hugging you, right? It's, and that was the reality for John and the others. Our hands have handled Jesus. His 
Jesus' hands reached out and washed their feet. Mary, after Jesus rose from the grave, she, she came across Jesus in the garden. She didn't know that it was him at first. Then her eyes were open. She thought it was him. And she just did what you would have done and I would have done. She just grabbed onto him, right? And Jesus said, don't, don't cling to me. So he is saying, our hands have handled. We've touched the Savior. Not just a spirit, not a ghost. Listen to this. It's after Jesus rose from the grave. It's from John 20, 26. And after eight days, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Our hands touched Jesus before the resurrection, after the resurrection. There's all of this detail in the word of God. Jesus had a meal of fish on the beach. Ghosts don't eat. Ghosts don't say, touch my hand, touch my side. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in the flesh. Andy Park wrote a song many years ago called In the Secret. And the words to the chorus are, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. I remember singing that in college. I heard it and then we're singing it and just crying. Good tears. It was the desire of my heart. So have you lost that? Like that yearning to be as close as you can to Jesus. I'm jealous. So, a little bit rougher here. I would have definitely been elbowing my way in the crowd to touch Jesus. That's more like me. I'll get back to myself instead of emotional. <laughs> if you're there, I don't know about you, but I'm not like, go ahead. No, I'm elbowing my way. I'm climbing a tree if that's what it takes for me to see the Lord. Here it is. This book is birthed out of hearing and seeing and touching Jesus. I was there. It is Holy Spirit inspired, but it is a first-hand account of your Lord and your Savior. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The second point, Jesus and eternal life are manifested. Jesus has been shown to us. Manifested is one of John's favorite words. You'll see it in this book over and over, and it means to be clearly revealed. It means you can see him if you want to see him. You can know him if you want to know him. He's not hidden from us. Jesus has been shown to us. And what else has been shown to us? Eternal life. Because when you see Jesus, you're going to know the way to heaven. Many of the same truths of John 3.16, aren't there? You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have eternal life. Look, John is bearing witness of what he heard, what he saw, and who he touched, correct? It's like a witness in court, a reliable witness in court who comes and speaks the truth. I'm bearing witness. Will you believe my testimony of Jesus, 
the one that I heard, the one that I saw, the one that I touched. And John is an unimpeachable witness. You cannot take who he is and what he has seen and discard it. You can't undermine it. Now, I believe what he said because the Lord inspired him to write it. But say you don't believe in the scriptures. Say that you don't necessarily believe that what is written here is from God. It might just be from a person. Let's talk more about why John is an unimpeachable witness in a legal sense. Well, he's an expert, is he not, on Jesus? There to see and to touch and to hear. But he was willing to give his life for the testimony of Jesus, wasn't he? At this point, all of the other apostles have been put to death for their testimony of Jesus. Eleven martyrs, beheaded, crushed with stones, filleted alive, and crucified. Eleven men who had the same account as John, willing to die for the truth that is given to us here in the Word. Not just saying it's true, but saying with their lives. No, I will not back down from the truth of who Jesus is. They gave their lives for that. And now here's John, the last living apostle. They tried to dip him in boiling oil. Then they took him and they put him on an island, hoping he would just die off and stop telling people about Jesus. He ends up getting off the island of Patmos. So he's an unimpeachable witness because he's willing to give his life. What are the chances that you can find one person who will die for the truth? You, you might be able to find one person. There are some who will die for the truth. How about 12 people who will die for the truth? It's less likely, but you might be able to. How about 12 people to die for a lie that they know is a lie? Can you find 12 people who will die for a lie that they know they made up? Impossible. So you have in front of you an unimpeachable witness in John, but in the other apostles also, testifying of who Jesus is. Will you believe? He is bearing witness to you. Look at how the preacher makes it personal. Isn't that what it says right in the verse? And declare to you, to you individually, if you will believe in Jesus as Lord, as Jesus as Savior, everything will be different. Your relationship with God will be open instead of closed. Your eternity will be heaven instead of hell. You'll be found instead of being lost. Right and wrong will be clear instead of cloudy. Love will be a reality, not just a, a pipe dream. Believe the unimpeachable Holy Spirit-inspired witness. Jesus is worthy of your faith. It is faith, nonetheless, but he is worth your faith. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. We have full joy because of fellowship. Isn't that worth proclaiming? Isn't that worth exclaiming that we have a full joy because of fellowship with the Father and because of fellowship with one another? 
Now, it's often said that Christians have a relationship with God, and that is true. The Bible usually calls it fellowship. I like that because we're not very good at relationships. We mess them up a lot. Our idea of relationship is usually pretty jacked. It's pretty selfish. It's fickle, a lot of drama. And since we're not good at relationship, we need to understand that our relationship with God is on his terms. It's not this give and take. You know how with a peer, with a friend, it's like, oh, there's some give and take here. No, he's right all the time. It's not like God says, well, you know, we'll compromise on that one. No, it's his way. It's fellowship. It's unlike any other relationship you have ever been in. That term relationship just gets, oh, I was in a relationship then. And then you just pop out of that relationship somehow. I'm in another relationship now. I don't know which relationship I'm in. That's not like that. It's fellowship. It's relationship according to the love of God and his truthful terms. So we can have joy through fellowship with God. That means as we commune with him as a friend because he bought our way into his presence, that's where we have joy. And it's not just fellowship with God, it's also fellowship with one another. Because when you have your vertical fellowship correct, on target, where it should be, then your horizontal fellowship can be where it should be. You know, but if you don't have this, if you don't have fellowship with the Father, then every bit of this, peer-to-peer, person-to-person, fellowship, friendship, it's going to be so flawed. You won't have any point of reference. You won't have any love. You won't have any right or wrong. So look at what it's saying here, that we have full joy because of fellowship with God. So this tells me that I've got a fellowship with him. How can I fellowship to him if I don't know his voice? How can I fellowship with him if I'm not hearing from him? How can I know God if I'm the one talking all the time? How am I going to hear his heart? It's a tragedy to me that a lot of people, a lot of people who are Christians, they won't memorize, they won't take God's word and put it in them. How are you going to hear from God throughout your day? How are you going to meditate on what he says if you don't know it? You need it hiding in you. We need it hiding in us. And he'll just keep bringing it to our remembrance so that we can walk with him and have this fellowship. I like that deeper biblical term of like, it's on my, it's on my terms. I'm drawing you in. Know my voice. He speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word and by his spirit. He reminds us. He, he moves us. He comforts us. Are you fellowshipping with the Lord? Because we have full joy in fellowship with him. And then he teaches me how to be patient, how to be gentle, how to be kind. Not because I am any of those things by myself, but because of the fellowship that we can have with the Father. It then affects our relationships with one another, another, this fullness of joy. Now, verse 4 tells us something in a very straightforward way, doesn't it? There are four times in this book where John says, this is why I wrote the book. This is why I'm writing to you. And he just spells it out. One of them is here. Then there are two more in the second chapter and one more in chapter 5. He says, this is my reason for writing to you. This book is difficult to outline. I've tried to do it, but the reason it's difficult to outline is because it repeats themes. 
It's kind of like a spiral, and so he'll make a point, and then he'll leave that point, and he'll come back to it again, and he'll deepen that truth once you get there. So if you're trying to be really linear, like I like to be, you'll find yourself just spinning around. Oh, he's talking about this again. I know it's important, but it's more stream of consciousness, um, digging deep as you come to it. So here's one of the four reasons that he is writing, and he says it right here. We write to you that your joy may be full. You can't have a full joy in your life without communion with God, without fellowship with God. John expounds upon this in the Gospel of John. These are the words of Jesus, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. There it is, the same thing that you may have full joy. And Jesus says that comes from abiding in him, from being connected to him. Then he says this, Jesus does in John 17, 13. Pay attention for the joy again. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So joy comes from abiding in Christ. Joy comes from communing with Christ, according to Jesus according to John 15 and John 17. That fellowship you cannot have unless you have believed upon Jesus as Lord. You have to give him your life in order for you to have fellowship, for you to have relationship with him. And once you believe upon his name, then he's with you. He never leaves you. No matter, even if you feel like you're by yourself, you're not. He's, he's right with you, tabernacling in your heart, in your life. So that's the fellowship that we have as Christians. I hear you guys talking to yourself sometimes. And you say, I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to the Lord. I, I, I just do it out loud sometimes, right? You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it in your mind because you're thinking anyways. Fellowship with him. Let his word wash over you. Be reminded of, of who he is and what he's done for you. Then you can have joy. Now let's talk about joy. Joy is not something that we can be lectured into. It's not a formula. It comes from a living relationship with God. And it's so much more than just happiness. Because happiness comes and goes. You felt it before. It's so much more than a feeling. It's not based on your circumstances. You might be in a lot of trouble and a lot of trial and a lot of anguish. And truthfully, you're not happy but you can still have overflowing joy. Joy is foundational to who we are, and it comes from communion with Christ. So you're submitting yourself to him, to having fellowship with him. Paul wrote Philippians from a Roman prison. He was in a dungeon, a terrible prison. And 19 times in that book of Philippians, he writes about joy or rejoicing. How is that possible? You're in prison. You're being abused. You're being persecuted. You're on the verge of death. And he's writing out of joy. Is he necessarily happy? No. But he's with Jesus. He's communing with him even there in the dungeon, in the darkness. He has the light of life. He writes about Jesus in Philippians, one of the prison epistles, over 40 times because Jesus is the source of joy. So the aim isn't for joy first, it's for Jesus. And the product of being with Jesus is joy. 
be careful because sometimes we are not very joyful and it comes from not being in fellowship with God. Our attitude and what we project to people around us is, yeah, I'm a Christian, but basically I'm just waiting to die so I can go to heaven. <laughs> being a Christian is really, really tough. I mean, you have no fun. You can't experience the destruction of sin. It's a real bummer. And pretty much I'm just barely hanging on because I'm holy. Is, is that joy? It's not. If you really are full of joy, don't be afraid to show it. And if you're not full of joy, commune with God so that you can be filled up because this fullness of joy overflows. You can't keep it in. I need that joy. I don't just need a little bit of joy, like a sprinkle of joy. I need joy like a fountain, like the song, kid's song says. I've got joy like a fountain. Like it's overflowing from me. Believe me, I'm not a happy person. Even when my circumstances are good, I'm still not very happy. But because of Jesus, the joy. Like, Lord, look at, look at who you are. Look at what you have revealed to me. Look at how you've equipped me to be your instrument. That I'm the disciple that you love. How can I not be joyful? I have to be. That's what I need. It's who I need. That fellowship with the Lord and his people. Instead of, oh, it's, it's pretty humdrum. I'm just holding on. I think of how we relate Christ to people. And some of it literally is because we have a full joy. Yes, it is what we say. The message of the gospel should be solid. It should be true. We should think about the words that we speak. But so much of it is the character of your life and, and, and how magnetic that is. It's not your joy. It's Jesus's joy. But that pulls people in because this world is dark, it's desperate, and it's hopeless. And we live in the same world as everybody else. And we're dealing with the same trials and tribulations and difficulties that they're dealing with a lot of times. But our joy is full because of fellowship with Jesus and with fellowship with one another. We have heard and seen and touched Jesus. That's worth exclaiming, proclaiming. It's exclamatory. Jesus and eternal life are manifested. They have been revealed. They've been opened. It's not this huge mystery. Jesus right here to love you all the way to the cross, all the way to heaven. We have joy through fellowship. I need the fellowship. I need it with you. I need it with the Lord. Jesus, we sing to you. We sing because of you. May our lips not be able to stay silent as we receive this testimony. May we be glad and rejoice while we fellowship with you right now in this prayer and in this song. May joy come from our lives. May we have fellowship with one another only because of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Your love has changed our lives in every way. May we speak of you. May we give testimony the way your apostles did. May we give your word away. I pray, Lord, that our worship here this first day of the week would just be the way we walk all week long. I, I need that, Lord, more of you, more of your presence, more joy from being with you. I thank you for the songs, Lord, how they help us remember the truth and how they 
they dwell in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we'd be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We'd be making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We're not the best singers, but we love you. We're not the best instruments or even the best people, Lord, but you've bought us and you've called us your own. Thank you for the truth that we're your children. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.